0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell. It's wonderful to have your company, Workplace Culture, or actually any group culture, really. We've talked about it on the podcast so many times and with very good reason. My guest in this episode is Fiona Robinson who thinks that understanding culture is all about understanding the rules of belonging. And what do you know? She's here to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Fiona Robertson, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Fiona, your book is really clever because you take this huge, big concept of workplace culture, this thing, that whether we're aware of it or not controls a fair bit about our life, our mood and our energy and how positively or negative we see, not just work, but the world. You take that whole big concept and you believe that at the heart of that are what you call the rules of belonging. I really like it as a concept. I love that set of words. I think it says a lot and I love the way you describe it in your book, Just to get the conversation started, because of course I'm going to take you deep on this and and extract all of your good stuff, but just to get the conversation started, can you talk us through how you arrived at this really beautiful concept of the rules of belonging and you reached the conclusion that this is at the heart of workplace culture?
1: Yes, for sure. So um, culture is one of those concepts. I think it's one of the most widely discussed and widely misunderstood concepts in business today it's very easy to accept and, you know, agree that culture is important. But in my many years of uh, playing around in this space, I've come to the conclusion that most leaders don't really know actually what it is. And so that led me on a bit of a quest to find a way to define it in a way that people could really clearly understand and do something about and try and make it just a bit more accessible. So the way I arrived at it was, I got a chance to, when I moved out of my corporate role, I got a chance to do a whole heap of reading. And part of that was uh, some fantastic research by a guy called Matthew Lieberman, who runs the uh, Center for Cognitive Neuroscience at UCLA. He also wrote a fabulous book called Social, if anyone's interested in this space. It's uh, one I highly recommend. And his research has essentially proven that Maslow's celebrated hierarchy of needs is actually wrong. So at the base of that, yes, I know, Oh, shocking. At the base of that, you know, famous pyramid, it says food, water and shelter. And, you know, that seems so obvious. Of course, humans need food, water and shelter more than they need anything else. However, it turns out that because the human brain has essentially not changed for about 80,000 years, and back then, If you weren't a member of a group, you couldn't get access to food, water, and shelter. So therefore, the human brain still believes that belonging is its most fundamental need. Yeah,
0: that's the gateway to food and shelter.
1: Indeed, it is. Yeah. So you know we've got these kind of two types of evolution that have happened on the planet. One's the sort of genetic, biological evolution, which is glacially slow. So we're walking around with an eighty thousand year old you know machine in our heads. And then we've created this world around us which is changing exponentially and there's an increasing mismatch between the two. So um I, I absolutely love Tim Minchin's songs. I don't know if you're a Tim Minchin fan, but he coined this beautiful phrase which describes us so perfectly. He says, we're monkeys in shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that's so true.
0: Hey, I love the part of your book where you – you helped us understand how long humans have been around in the context of the history of the Earth by breaking it. You're pretending that it, the the history of the Earth was a year, and if the history of the Earth was a year, then the first few months up to March, the Earth was a really horrible, uninhabitable place, and then for the next few months there were these little single cell creatures in the water, etc. And if you want to talk about when humans arrived, essentially we arrived at lunchtime on the 31st of December, just in time, as you say to put up the new year's eve celebration decorations that's a fa- fascinating concept and 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 that was at the same part of the book where you talked about this idea that we have the same brain that our four bears had 80,000 years ago and our brain is not is just not wired to handle the world we've designed for ourselves that's an amazing concept that the significance of that Is enormous, and I know you were telling, you were answering my other question and and telling your story. Let's come back to that. Can you just tell us about the consequences of that fact—the fact that you and I have got the same brain as humans eighty thousand years ago, yet we live in this world, which is clearly totally different.
1: Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, You know, the significance of that cannot be overstated. So you know, we've created this world for ourselves, which is full of, you know, immersive online gaming and options trading, and of course, Zoom meetings and video conferencing. I mean, the human brain is so not designed for that. It's interesting, because people are uh, doing so much more of it these days. And everyone's finding it completely exhausting. And they're so confused about why is it so exhausting to sit and stare at a screen all day. And it's because, there's research that shows that if we were physically close to one another, I think if we're within six feet, they've been able to prove that my subconscious knows what your pulse rate is doing. And of course, we're reading pheromones and we're looking at micro expressions. But the minute you're looking at another human face over a screen, it's almost like your, your subconscious mind is sort of shooting out Bluetooth and it's hitting a brick wall. And so your brain gets so confused. It's going, you know, there's a human there but I can't can't pick up anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so it means that the conscious mind has to work 10 times harder to pick up all those micro cues. And so we're all completely exhausted by it. And it's because, you know, we're walking around with this machine that is just not designed for the world we've created for ourselves. Basically what we have is a threat detection pattern recognition machine that is designed to do only one thing. And that is to keep us alive, to keep us safe. So it's fascinating. And there's another piece of research which I'm, which I, uh, again, Matt Lieberman, I'm a big fan of his work. He has managed to prove that the brain cannot distinguish between social pain and physical pain. So, um, I don't know if you're interested in hearing the details of the experiment that proved this, but yeah, it's an amazing story. So neuroscientists, uh, I'm kind of a, you know, closet neuroscientist, I suppose, enthusiastic amateur, you could call me. Our um, neuroscientists now have this- That thing sums called, up my um, life. <laughs> they now have these things called functional MRI machines. So basically you can wear an MRI machine on your head and do stuff and they can figure out what you know what's going on in your brain while you're doing things. So they used this technique and they told the subject of this experiment that they were going to be playing a game. They were given a, a computer console and told that they were going to be throwing a virtual ball between themselves and two other people Who were in other locations. Now, as it happens, they were actually playing this game against a computer, but they didn't know that. And in the first round of the experiment, they were told, I'm awfully sorry, your console's not working at the moment. So could you just please watch the other two people throw the ball between themselves for a moment? And then in the second round of the experiment, they were told, now everything's fixed. So please throw the ball between the three of you. So they began to do that. But after a while, the other two, you know, people started throwing the ball between them again. And excluding the person who was the subject of the experiment. And so they were able to, you know, compare. The first time they're watching it, they thought they couldn't participate. The second time they're watching it, they thought they were being deliberately excluded. And lo and behold, all the pain centers of their brain lit up exactly like they were having some kind of physical pain event. Fascinating wow. stuff.
0: That is fascinating. So they're okay when it wasn't possible for them to participate because the technology wasn't working, but when they were excluded, it was like their brain was reacting like physical pain. Wow, that yeah. is fascinating. Now, I distracted you enormously, Fiona. You were doing a beautiful job of telling us how you arrived at this concept of the rules of belonging, being at the core of workplace culture, and you, you, you started to tell us a little bit about the research that has inspired you to this. How did you – do you remember the moment you landed on the words? Because I'm always fascinated. I have so many people on this podcast who have got great books, and often the ones that I remember, and I'll remember yours, it's these really cool cluster of words, this really cool group of words that says a lot in so few words. Do you remember landing on them?
1: Yeah, I do. I, um, I had been writing about belonging in various different ways for quite a long time, and I remember having a conversation with a colleague where I said, "It's almost as though there's all these unwritten rules." And they said to me, "Yeah, you know what it takes to belong." And I said, "Yeah, it's the rules of belonging." And we suddenly both looked at each other and went, "That's it!" You know, it was, it was kind it. of this eureka moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was just a culmination of lots of reading and lots of thinking, and then that great conversation.
0: Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, let's get to the useful stuff though, because that's all very interesting. But I'm I'm someone listening to this podcast. I'm a manager of a team. I'm a leader of an organization in some way, whether it's a huge, big multi-nat or something in between, or you know, a tiny organization or something in between. We all have challenges when it comes to workplace culture. Tell us how this understanding, what rules of belonging are can help us to to identify and shape the type of culture that we we want to have.
1: yeah, for sure, because yeah, one of the the real challenges around the whole concept of culture is it's such it's such a nebulous thing, and it's very hard to make it you know concrete and practical. so probably the easiest way to describe how to make it practical is if you think about what happens to a person when they join a new group so they'll first of all watch what other people are doing they will very quickly figure out whether the behavior that that is being exhibited in the group is earning that person belonging or losing that person belonging and then they'll start to experiment with that behavior themselves if they get the result they're hoping for that then becomes their new way of behaving so humans adopt the behavior that is successful in the group that they join. And here's where it gets really interesting. Once they have earned their belonging through a particular set of rules, as soon as that set of rules looks like it might change, that's when they will resist. Because if they've earned their belonging through a certain set of rules and then those rules change, then their belonging is at risk. And because of the way we're hardwired from our evolution – a threat to our belonging is is considered by the subconscious as a threat to life and so all those times when you've tried to change something and people push back and you don't know why usually it's because they are reacting that's how to they that belong. whether it's yeah whether it's consciously or unconsciously they most of them don't even know that this is going on but that's what's underneath it
0: yeah, that's really powerful. I love that idea. It actually reminds me. I just looked it up while you were talking. I, I did an episode a long time ago with Steve Simpson, who talks about yeah. the unwritten ground rules, and yes. it's it's an equally powerful concept. That idea that in any culture there are these rules that exist that everyone knows, whether they articulate them with the same words or not, they've they've identified them. And I remember one of the examples was, you know, you, if you was to start a new school. You go to you go to a new school and the teacher tells you the rules, but the kids already know about these secret rules because they'll be listening. Okay, that's what the teachers want me to do. And whether they know it or not, what they're waiting to do is to see how the other kids act and see how the behaviours of the other kids is either rewarded or punished by the people around them, whether it's the peers or the teachers. And then they adopt those behaviours. They learn what works and what doesn't work. And you talked about. There are five phases of learning to behave, and I'm sorry if I'm stealing your thunder here, but it's the idea of examining what others do, number one, evaluating what they're doing. Does it earn them or does it hurt them? And then you experiment to see if that works for me. And then number four is to embrace that as my new normal. So in this new workplace culture or this new school culture or whatever group it is, I've evaluated what works, I've tried it out, and I've embraced it as my new behavior. And this is where it gets really interesting for organizations. That fifth phase means that once I've bought into all of that, if you try and change it on me, I'm going to kick up a real stink because this is super important. This is how I belong in this organization. And you made the very good point in your book. That people aren't bad at change. We're really great at change when it suits us. We can change on a dime. Look what we did during the COVID response. We changed on a dime because it suited us. But the change that we have trouble with in organizations is change that threatens someone's belonging in that workplace culture. I love it. I think that's so powerful.
1: Yeah. And look, you know, I've been told for years that people are bad at change and that people just resist change and they don't like change. It's just garbage. We absolutely can turn on a dime. I mean, just think how quickly we shift our behavior when we get a new boss. You know, we immediately figure out how our new boss likes us to do things and we start to do that. Yeah, Mm. exactly. So, you know, humans are spectacularly, breathtakingly good at change in the service of their own belonging.
0: Yeah, wonderful. All right. So now you, you either go on with, if I didn't let you finish your point, you feel free to go on or I've got another question for you. Door well, I was A just or Door going B. To say
1: that the, <laughs> Well, I was going to say that the implication of all of that for shifting culture is that firstly you better know what earns belonging and what loses belonging in your team because that's what people are going to do. So as the leader, figure out, you know, those two things and make sure that you're encouraging or approving of or, you know, giving greater belonging to people who do the behaviors you want to see more of. And, you know, the opposite to the the behaviors you want to see less of. But the other point I was going to make is that, you know, just like those kids in the schoolyard that you were describing a moment ago, we are watching not only the behavior of our colleagues, but the responses to that behavior from others. So let me give you an example. I've worked in organizations where the most senior person in a meeting will often leave the meeting before the end. And in that particular environment, Because busyness was a badge of honor, that behavior, leaving before the end, was actually a way to improve that person's status and belonging. So everyone would nod sagely and say, gosh, they must be terribly important Um, and, you know, yes, mm, understand. And then I've worked in other cultures where that exact same behavior, leaving the meeting before the end, would be interpreted by everybody as being incredibly unprofessional And, you know, clearly that person doesn't value the the time of their colleagues. Clearly they don't value making accountabilities clear and agreeing next steps and all of that. So the identical behavior is interpreted in two different ways. And that's where the culture really lies. It's in the interpretation of the behavior, what earns and loses belonging.
0: Hey, I just caught myself having a bias then. So out of those two scenarios, there is one I much preferred. And I was working. For part of your story on the assumption that and and when I read your book, I was working on the assumption that there was one good one and one bad one in all of that. But then I remembered something else that you wrote, and that is that no one workplace culture suits every workplace because we all have different purposes and different goals. So maybe I was wrong to assume that there was a good one and a bad one, and that maybe the first scenario is is good and positive in some workplace cultures. Is is that possible? It can it be possible that an organization is set up with a type of purpose where story A is preferred. People leave the room because they're so busy and important and we all gravely sit there and nodding and agreeing and, and hope that one day we're that busy. Is that ever good?
1: Look, I think it would only be good in a situation where you wanted to encourage more of the more junior people to take more, you know, to step up and take up the space that was Have was ambition, left by perhaps. those leaders. Yes. So, I mean, I can envisage, certainly I'm, I'm the same as you. You know, generally I would prefer people to stay to the end of the meeting, but I think the point you're trying to make is a really important one that there's a lot of work done in the culture space around, you know, what is a good culture and a bad culture? And I, I have a real issue with the idea that there is some objectively perfect culture that every organization should be striving towards. I just don't think that's realistic because unless every organization has the same strategy, then they don't need the same culture some need to be far more aggressive and ambitious and competitive other organizations need to be far more slow and gentle you know it just depends what you're actually trying to achieve i think the most important thing to do is not to have a conversation about strategy without a, a, a corresponding conversation about do we have the culture to execute the right this
0: strategy in place.
1: yeah because otherwise we've written a nice piece of paper
0: yes <laughs> I have seen many organizations that fit into story A where the senior leaders are so busy and important and they have so many back-to-back meetings that they get up and leave meetings. They, they come late, they'll leave 10, 20, 30 people waiting for them for 15, 20 minutes. And I know that there is a range of responses to that. And I know we're just talking about one cultural behavior, but it's a very common one. There are a range of responses to that. Some people in the organizations aspire to be that. They see that and they think, wow, that person is so senior. They have a really hierarchical mindset and they want to be them. And You see the next level down and then the next level down start to mimic that behavior and treat their direct reports that way. But then there are equally, there there are as many, if not more people who just are sitting there thinking, my God, that is so rude. Can you not mm. organize your time? Do you not value the time of the other 20 people who are sitting here waiting for you to, for five or 10 minutes every time? That is a real toxic behaviour, and that's why I guess when you first talked about it, and when I first read it in your book, I made the assumption that one of those behave one of those stories was good, and one of them wasn't. But I, I did want to just check in to make sure that that you know, if they're you know wondering if there are any places where that would be appropriate, I still don't think so. All right, now this is where you really earn your money today, Fiona. I, I just talked to myself then for ages, didn't I? Now this is where you really earn your money, Fiona. Talk us through it. So. We've got podcasts. They've got listeners to this podcast who are sitting there thinking, "I've bought into that. I can see that these rules of belonging are really important. I can see that they're rooted deeply in what it means to be human as social beings. What can I do about it? Talk me through a process that I can work on myself with my team in my organisation that is going to help me take the steps that I need to take."
1: Absolutely. So um, the very first thing, and it's going to sound so sort of trite, but the very first thing is to notice. You know, it's a bit like if you're living in the matrix, if you don't know there's something to see, you won't see anything. But as soon as you think about the rules of belonging being what culture actually is, then you can't unsee them ever again. So just noticing, what does it take to earn belonging in my team? What does it take to lose belonging in my team? And then consciously and explicitly discuss with your team what behaviors you want to see more of so that the team can be effective at executing whatever its strategy is you know, this can work at a a team level or an organisational level. And then make sure that you are giving extra belonging, you know, giving your approval, improving the status of the people, giving love, absolutely. I mean, I said before, we've got these pattern, you know, threat detection, pattern recognition machines in our heads. Essentially, what our brain wants to know is, am I safe? And do you love me? In that order, right? So, to change people's behaviour to what you want, it needs to be safer for them to do the new behaviour than it was to do the old. Now, that's an easy thing to say and a really challenging thing to do in real life. It has to be genuinely safer to do the new than the old. It can be done and there's a million ways of, you know, creating little rituals that celebrate the new behaviours, but it has to be explicit and it has to be deliberate because culture is changing all the time anyway. It's either going to happen by accident or it's going to be something you do very deliberately.
0: Well, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. Let's go over these. So The three steps that you talked about were, number one, to notice, number two, were to discuss, and number three was to give extra belonging, give extra love to people who are exhibiting the behaviors that you want to see. Let's talk about each of these in turn. Number one is to notice, and that is a really important point. I can't remember the language around it, but Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, Reminded us that we can train our brain to look for something. For example, if you're waiting at a train station with hundreds of people all around you, but you know the person you're waiting for is wearing a blue coat, you can train your brain to look for blue coats and all the blue coats will stand out to you. It's quite amazing. Same as if you're thinking about buying a certain type of car. For the next week or so, you're driving around and noticing everywhere those cars are. It's a really interesting phenomenon, and that's the difference between thinking fast not thinking deeply, not thinking deliberately and thinking slow, which is that deliberate type of thinking. So what you're saying there is if just by clocking on and saying, hey, there is some work to do on our behaviour on our culture, our workplace culture, just by having that thought and thinking that you want to do something about it, your brain will switch on and start to notice the behavior that's going on around you. But this is my question. What am I trying to pay attention to? Do I just rely on my own kind of street knowledge about hmm. what behaviors have what effect i mean i'm no psychologist i'm not even a genius i'm not even that smart how do i know the consequences of all the behaviors i'm seeing what's my guide
1: it's such a great question it is incredibly difficult particularly if you're the leader in the team because the power differential between you and the members of your team always has, is there you know you there's nothing you can do about getting rid of it and so you know you might sigh In a meeting and your entire team takes that to mean you know he or she didn't like what i just said right so tiny little we are because of our evolution we are so hardwired to be alert to these signals for what exactly it's survival and so one of the things that i've seen work really well in teams is once, once this conversation begins, so we say we want to do some work on our culture, we identify that culture is the rules of belonging, then we ask the team, notice for me, please, what makes you feel like I'm giving more or less approval to something and let's talk about it really explicitly. Um, one of the other things that can work really nicely is to ask a new person. So before the person goes native, basically, before they adopt the behaviours that they're seeing around them as successful, Get them to to jot down anything they notice that's strange, or you know what seems to make people approved of around here. What might get you into trouble around here? They can see it clearly early on, and then after a while they go native, and they ju- it just becomes invisible. It's like that old cartoon with the two fish in the fishbowl, and one says to the other, "How's the water?" and the second one says, "What's water?" You know, when you're in it, you can't yeah. see it. So um, yeah, getting if some. If only those know, experimenters.
0: Externalized- could have pulled one of those monkeys aside shortly after they put them in the cage and asked them, what, what do you find strange about this cage of monkeys and the ladder?
1: <laughs> if only. <laughs> but you've got to notice before you can choose, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if you don't notice, you don't have the, the power of choice.
0: All right, so that's about noticing, and and the add-on. The second time we came around to that, you talked about me as a leader asking everyone to notice stuff, and let's have a conversation. And I'm imagining this conversation would would happen over a number of weeks or months as we come together and sort of check in about this. You know, once we've established we're on this journey together, I, I like it, as as you can imagine, this happening, I can see it happening in in meetings. Hey, you know, hey, who agrees? We we need to do something about our culture. Let's get better at this. Let's be awesome. Okay, this is our first step. Let's just notice stuff and talk about it. Every time we meet, let's just put five or 10 minutes aside, talk about what we've noticed. I like that. And then you just, and this is how you said it the first time, discuss what you want to see more of. Now, I'm assuming you don't mean that me as the boss, I get to decide what behaviors we want to see more of. And I start telling you, I want to see more of these behaviors. I'm (laughs) guessing that's not what you mean.
1: No, that is not what I mean. So, If this stuff is co-created, it is far more likely to be successful. So it would be, again, a discussion as a team, what kinds of behaviours are working for us to help us, you know, not just make us feel good or make us happy or make us, you know, what are the behaviours that help us execute the thing that we are trying to execute? So what are successful behaviours for this team? And therefore, we want to see more of them. And what do we think might be holding us back and we want to see less of? Let's agree that together. And then let's agree how we're going to, you know, celebrate. I've seen teams do um, things like, so they might have gone from an environment where they earned belonging by essentially bitching about each other behind their back to the boss, right? And then they have had a conversation which says, look, all that is doing is slowing everything down. We can't work quickly because we don't trust each other. So we're not going to do that anymore. So the next time I hear somebody saying something about a colleague we're going to say, you guys have that conversation together and don't include me anymore. So, you know, as soon as somebody does have a direct conversation with their colleague about whatever's bugging them, everybody would applaud, <laughs> which seems ridiculous, right? That It almost looked like a spectator sport, but it yeah. was a little ritual that yeah. everyone went, okay, Makes it fun hey, too. we're, you know, we're doing, we're sort of, you know, we're, we're acting like grown-ups. We're doing it. Addressing Takes the edge challenges. Off. We're doing the thing, Yeah.
0: Hey, uh, how good are teams at usually uncovering what's really going on? I mean, we're talking about doing this without a facilitator, without a, a guide like yourself who might come in as a as a third party. If we're to do this by ourselves, we decide we can take this on, how good are groups of people usually at picking apart this stuff, working out what's good and what's bad?
1: Look, it can be done. It certainly helps to have an outsider, I think, but then I would say that, wouldn't I, because right. I'd be yeah, the person who'd come in and do it. but. Well, I think emails. that having those kind of, you know, yeah, well, there is that. Um, I think <laughs> there's something about, you know, having some external, you know, observers or an observer who can just say, Hey, did you guys notice X or Y just happened? What do you think that's actually about? That can help. Now it, it's not essential, but I definitely think it can help. You know, the other thing that I love to see is focus groups. So qualitative research and that can be done, again, you know, by a, it can be someone from HR, it can be another leader, it can be all sorts of, you know, there are trusted advisors inside organizations all over the place. And the kinds of questions that I love to see are, when the boss did action X, why did you think that was done? And what did you think of that action? And what did you think of that motivation? So, I'm going to go slightly off track for a moment here, but I think it's an important point. One of the things I see a lot of is people confusing culture with engagement. So I often hear leaders say, oh, yes, I'm measuring culture because I've got an engagement survey. And I say to them, well, no, those two things are not the same. So culture is the underlying system and engagement is an employee's experience of that system. So you will never see in an engagement survey a question that says, when the boss sacked Harry.'" Did you think that was because the boss didn't like Harry or did you think that was because the boss thought Harry was, you know, not following our values? And whichever is the answer to that is going to be a, make a big difference either positively or negatively to the culture. But no question like that ever appears in an engagement survey. So I think there's there's ways of uncovering the interpretation of behavior that include that kind of focus group conversation, or, as you say, bringing someone in to have an external be an external observer of what's going on under the dynamics of a group.
0: Hey before you gave the example of a group of people who decided that coming in and bitching to the boss about each other was one of the behaviours they wanted to cut out, and the positive behaviour in its place, the swap, was talking to each other and having that tough conversation or bringing it up to the person that you need to have the conversation with. What are some of the other really common things that teams in a professional setting, a professional culture would need to iron out amongst each other? Some of the things that can commonly go wrong in a workplace culture.
1: Yeah. One of the things that is very, very common is being too nice. So the way that plays out is, you know, the way to belong around here is to nod and smile and say yes to everything in the meeting, but then They'll go out of the meeting and do something completely different. So this kind of false harmony ah. that is absolutely corrosive because no one trusts anyone, everything takes 10 times longer. We all you know it, it reminds me of the penguins from that Madagascar movie Smile and Wave, Boys, Smile and Wave. you know everyone just kind of pretends that everything's fine. it's this kind of passive aggressive, mm. yeah, false harmony that yeah. is completely corrosive, so that's got to go.
0: Rather than that, what Patrick Lencioni describes as that constructive conflict, which is exactly the opposite of that false harmony, being able to have conflict with each other in a really constructive, professional, positive kind of a way, much better than bearing oh, it. And respectful. It's, and that's just not in any, any work. That's not just in the workplace. That's in any relationship, too. All right. Fantastic. Now, we're quickly running out of time, Fiona, because I've been butting in so often. Now, that last one. We've gone from notice, notice what you want, notice what you see, notice what's going on in the office, then discuss what we want to see more of, what we want to see less of. And The third part of the process, very simple process too I, I like, is giving extra belonging. So Giving some love to the people who do what you say. Hey, look, I'm a, say I'm a manager. I lead five to 10 people. I'm about 50 rungs below the CEO in an organization. HR won't even take my call. They might get back to me two weeks Mm -hmm. later. I have no power in this organization. I can't hire and fire. I can't give bonuses. I can't give raises. What can I give? What's this love that you say I should be giving to the people who exhibit the behaviors we decided we want to see?
1: Such a great question. So there is actually quite a lot that you can do, even no matter where you sit in the organization. The most basic thing you can do is celebrate When you see somebody doing, you know, a behavior that you've asked for more of or you've agreed jointly that you're going to try and do more of and, you know, genuinely go over the top and say how fantastic it is and all the reasons why it's fantastic. And that that's going to help us do what more of what we want to do. And, you know, employee of the month kind of stuff. Right. The other thing that people respond really well to is what they call relational rewards. So anything that gives them the sense that they are you know, favoured or they get to hang out with a more senior leader. So you might know somebody more senior in the organisation and you could ask them, would they be prepared to have a cup of coffee with your person because your person's just done a fantastic thing and you would love them to feel special.
0: That's a really interesting one, that idea of, hey, I'm going to reward you person in the team who's done such a great job with a coffee with the... I don't know the general manager or the you know whatever it is, someone high in the organization. It's a cool idea because we know in reality most organizations are very hierarchical and people kind of look up to them as some kind of famous person, like a celebrity that walks on the floor occasionally. Have you seen that work well in practice? Does
1: that actually get traction? That idea? Oh, unbelievably well. So uh, for, for for six months afterwards, that person will be name dropping. When I had coffee with you know Joe my mate Joe. Yeah, they honestly that works so well because that, you know, it's a symbol. It's yeah. a symbol of greater belonging. It's yeah. a symbol of status yeah. in the organization. And it costs you nothing. So, you know, anything that gives a person sort of bragging rights, you know, that kind of relational reward. Or even even just to have lunch with you. I mean, I know you're only their, you know, immediate manager. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that, Doesn't quite that have counts the same for
0: something. Punch, though, does it?
1: No, not
0: quite, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's good. Now I interrupted you. Where you were you were giving another wonderful example. They're all great examples, by the way, of things that I can do. I, I might feel powerless as far as the, the organizational machine is concerned, but there are all these cool little great things that I can do to reward people. Hey, you, so tell some of those, what can I do to punish people who don't do these things? Do I give them the cold shoulder, <laughs> ignore them, park in their parking spot? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, probably not the parking one. So look The only other example I was going to give of the way that you can do, uh, make people feel loved is just good old fashioned. You know, I've seen someone send a handwritten thank you note, you know, to a person's home. Just, you know, little, little things that don't take a lot of time or money, but really are meaningful for people. And as far as what do you do about the people who are not exhibiting those behaviors? You know, provided the behaviors they're exhibiting aren't genuinely destructive to the team, in which case they need to be addressed. Then yes, honestly, it is better to ignore them. So reward, catch people doing something right and reward the positive behaviors. It won't take very long to, before people figure out that, you know, they need to do more of those things that you're rewarding and just ignore the rest. It's basically, it's, it's that sort of David Cooper writers appreciative inquiry idea of, you know, the things you focus on will grow and the things you don't focus on will kind of wither.
0: That was some of the best advice I received as a very young teacher is catch people doing the right thing and, and ignore the other stuff and the, the right stuff will grow Fiona we have very quickly run out of time I love the concept I loved even more the way you explained it to us and the stories you had to tell us thank you so much for coming on the team guru podcast
1: it's been an absolute pleasure
0: That was Fiona Robertson. I loved her take on culture, the concept of the rules of belonging, and that simple three-step process. Number one, notice what's going on. Number two, discuss what you and your team would like to see and what you'd not like to see. And number three, reward the good stuff. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Fiona on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast, You'll find it along with the entire back catalog of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.